What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. we're just inside three weeks till the midterm election. And it's kind of a nail biter. And, you know, there, there's always the, <laughs> there's always that thing, you know, I, my, my younger son has kind of gotten me back into football. He's into football. And there's always that thing about a great game. A great football game is too evenly matched. It's, you know, you don't know until the final moment who's going to be, uh, who's going to win. And it's always kind of struck me as funny that, if it's one of your teams, you don't want a great game. You want a bad game where your team slaughters the other team. That's a good game. Now, you may look back on – now, my, my son is a New York Giants fan, not surprisingly. Um, and if you don't follow football, uh, this is the f- kind of the first season that it's kind of fun to be a New York Giants fan in a few years, they've been they've had a lot of really bad seasons recently, but now they're off to a great start. And and the game um, the game this weekend uh, looked like it might turn out to be a loss, but man, they rallied right at the end and they came back. So like when it's your team and they win in a great game, a lot of lot of lot of tension, a lot of drama, and you don't know. It's a great game in retrospect. It's not a great game while it's happening because it's nerve wracking. You want that. You want it to be a bad game. And uh, those of us who think it's really important for the Democrats to have a good midterm, we want a bad game midterm in which Democrats come back and completely own the GOP on the um, on the traction of the backlash against Dobbs and all that great stuff. And, uh, you know, gasoline uh, dropping like a lead balloon, you know, 50 cents a gallon for your for your for your gallon of gas but that's not where we are um there's definitely a movement in the gop direction uh you know we're in that fog of war period right now um we don't know there has uh in the spring it's a republican route uh into the summer democrats are coming back a mixture of really three things uh gas prices going down big backlash against Dobbs and Democrats for their own partisans are, are getting some legislation passed. So everything's kind of coming together. And But in the last month or so, the price of gas has edged back up a bit. In some regions of the country, it's edged back up a lot. 
because of like refinery problems on the West Coast. And, uh, you know, we see headlines, uh, you know, whether these whether they really show up in any meaningful way in, you know, the cost of grapes or the cost of a of a of a carton of milk or something like that. Who knows? But you see headlines. Wow. Inflation is staying and people get, you know, that that affects things. There is uh, the argument that that uh, people's focus on abortion is sort of dissipating. It's certainly not what I see in the people who who I know, but let's be honest, I, I don't know a cross-section of the population. So here we are, and you know, the kind of the numbers seem to be trending in a GOP direction. Not tremendously, but you know, you get you care about these things and you're kind of, you know, you're you're auto-refreshing 538 or RCP like nonstop, right? To kind of see all the details. So anyway, we're going to talk about that, and we're also going to talk about uh, what happens if the uh, Republicans win one or both of houses of Congress. And I think it's certainly likely they're going to win the House. And if they do win the House, for what they're for the kind of for old-fashioned legislating, which is what Democrats, you know, the, that's the Democrats' game. The current system in Washington is is pretty hard to manage. You need sixty votes in the Senate. You need the majority in the House. You need all sorts of uh, different things to line up. But Republicans have kind of a different angle. You get one House and you just say, maybe we won't, maybe we'll stop paying the government's bills. Maybe we'll stop paying the, the government's debt obligations, in which case the US government declares bankruptcy, literally, that's what it means. If you were if you were refusing to pay pay your 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 debts, um, and if you don't, uh, maybe you know if if you will do that unless you cut Social Security or cut Medicare or stop sending uh, weaponry to Ukraine. Uh, and this is real, and this is not some um, uh, th- this is not some uh, crazy idea. They did it uh, eleven years ago. This exact same thing, and um, you know the uh, Congress of eleven years ago, and again eleven years ago they just had the House; they didn't even have the Senate yet. Um, they won the Senate in the in twenty fourteen. Um, the uh, caucus, the Republican caucus, is like far crazier now than it was then. So th- this isn't. Um, the The two parties kind of operate in different in different ways. They can the 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 democratic way, as I said, is you know we're going to try to line up the votes and pass legislation. And um, the Republican strategy is we are going to light the house on fire unless you do what we say, i.e., hostage taking. But that's where we are. So uh, we are going to talk about that. We're going to also talk a bit about um, situation in Ukraine, which uh, actually, in some ways, it, it's not only a uh, a pretty big issue uh, in itself, kind of across the across the world terrain, um, but it is intersecting with our legislative politics here in the United States. There's been some rumblings about it, but um, just a uh, just uh, in the last 48 hours, Kevin McCarthy's basically said, like, yeah, if we're in charge, I don't know about sending these weapons to Ukraine. We may, I think, we'll probably want to stop that. And remember, when you want to stop something, 
You don't need 60 votes in the Senate. You don't even need the Senate. You just say, like, we just won't do it in the House. So too bad. Um, so these two, these things are, uh, you know, these things are coming together. Before we get to that, and before I introduce my co-host, Kate Riga, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Hey, did you know Grady's high-quality, all-natural cold brew concentrates can be heated up for a piping hot cup of joe, brew overnight, or pour directly from our convenient cold brew kit for a winter pick-me-up you don't have to leave your house to enjoy. Brewed strong with a blend of 100% Arabica coffee, Grady's Full Proof Bean Bags take the mess and guesswork out of brewing with rich, velvety coffee you can drink iced, hot, or spiked in a cocktail. Just steep overnight and sip to your heart's content. Save yourself a stop and try Grady's any way you want. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com and promo code TPM. So, um, Kate Riga, what do we got? Well, I would say as someone who was wearing a Packers jersey during said game to New York Giants, a hearty boo to the boys in green. Oh, I didn't know it was personal. Uh, Yeah, I'm so glad I got to relive that just now. Oh, my God. (laughs) That last quarter, that was like they just turned it on. I mean, my my, – I can't even remember. What was it? There was – there was – there were a couple turnovers. One was an interception. There was a there was a stripped ball fumble. Uh, the Packers quarterback, and then there was that. Um, what seemed the game seemed over when the Packers seemed to intercept it mm-hmm. uh, in the end zone. Um, but then on instant replay, it was like obviously pass interference, and then that set it up for the Giants. And I and I, it's funny that I was I was telling my my wife it was striking. Obviously, in a case like that, where you know pass interference penalties are often very controversial because there's so many different moving pieces that go into what constitutes uh, pass interference, that when you got a, a, a call like that, that is like a game maker, right? I mean, if that interception, the game's over basically for the Giants. And I was struck by the Packers. The Packers um, coach didn't even didn't even say anything. Didn't argue. He was just fuck. That sucks. Yeah. I mean, the Packers inability to generate, you know, a single first down will also work in the Giants favor there. But that's I'm always a thing. Yeah. I've got, uh, you know, I've got ties to the Eagles and the Bills as well. So I'm trying to look to those teams to soothe my wounded heart. And also the Phillies who, uh, you know, baseball is not as much my thing because Baseball games feel very long when after the end of nine innings, there have been two runs scored as it was last night. But hey, go Phillies, baby. You know, it's 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 funny. Um, I know this is a thing with younger people that baseball is just too slow and it takes too long. I love going to the games in person. Right. I think is super fun and enjoyable. But but it's funny because I guess watching it, the duration is not that different from a football game. Uh, I mean, depends, right? Some games go long. Some games go long. And that's obviously the thing that it's not a timed game. So the games can go unbelievably long. Um, but it's, but it's funny though, that I'm, I, (laughs) I think like a lot of, you know, I grew up like uh, baseball was, was our kind of family sport and I, and I really liked it. And, uh, you know, if anybody out there is a, um, you know, baseball card collector. I've got like a really kick-ass, almost complete set of year sets from like 1977, 78, 79. 
Nice. Just telling you guys. <laughs> Just you putting know, that, that out there. Yeah, putting that out there. Um, but I... I hate that people don't have the patience for baseball, but I, f- I cannot lie and say that I kind of don't watch it the way I used to. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, it's slow. And I, I kind of, I kind of saw this when I've never been a basketball fan. Like I never, I don't have a team, um, whatever, but when it gets into the, into the finals, you know, I, I watch them and you know, basketball is just a, it's just an intense game, right? Oh, it's yeah. fast. It's, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's exciting. And, um, I remember my dad used to, uh, when I was a kid be always, you know, the kind of, I don't think he's the only one who said this, but kind of like, you know, what's the point of, of watching the first, you know, all but the last four minutes where we figure out who's going to win by two points. Mm. Obviously that doesn't, uh, really capture what goes into basketball. Um, but you know, with, with, Football, you know, football too. And, and I, you know, it's funny. I don't know if I know that generationally sports fanship is much more diverse in gender terms than it, than it was when I was a kid, where it's basically the boys, right? The boys and the dads kind of thing um, for football. Um, but what I was struck by is that I think when I was a little boy, football was the most male watching sport like to the you know again and and you know there's all sorts of whys and whatever but basically who watched football who 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 you talked about did you see the game was much more um male than it is now and football seemed like the most but that has changed dramatically dramatically and 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 I I know that the NFL has really worked at that for obvious, you know, for obvious reasons. It's obviously just our whole culture has changed. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's very different. I would say the the WNBA finals were the most compelling sports that I watched this year. And it was incredibly fun and had none of the moral qualms that I have in being a football fan. So because that's the, the way to go. Because and, and, oh, yeah. well, the injuries, the domestic abuse, the yeah, sexual gonna... assault. It's the fact that, you know, all any women involved are basically relegated to being sideline reporters instead of, you know, color commentators. But in the WNBA, women refs, women commentators, women coaches. I mean, it's just, and by the way, it's not even just kind of a moral thing. It's just incredibly fun. They're incredibly talented and mm-hmm. watching the games has been, uh, fun and affordable. We've gotten really into the mystics and tickets are cheap, unfortunately, but also makes it easier to be a stalwart fan. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think um, it, it's funny. One of the games, I watched a bunch of games this weekend and I can't remember which game it was. I think if I would have been watching at the right time, it would have been all of them. Uh, maybe it was when the Chiefs came out, you know, but they come out with all the kind of, and now so-and-so, blah, 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 you know, Patrick Mahomes comes out, whatever. And he's coming out and he's coming out through kind of two lines of cheerleaders. And, you know, from what I grew up with, of course, the cheerleaders got the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, got the rant, you know, all the culture of different uh, cheerleading squads and everything. Um, so, you know, and, and so I see there's, you know, t- two lines of, of cheerleaders, right, that they're running through and that's all the rah-rah and everything. And uh, that's what I grew up with and kind of like 
you know, it's on the one hand, just like totally natural. That's football. Every team has a squad. But as I was looking at it from the perspective of today, I was like, that's a little weird. <laughs> like, okay, that's a, that's a little strange. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, although I would, I would say I feel like I feel like when I watch these games now, in the past, when you watch football on TV, there was a lot more of the cheerleaders. I don't know, just mentioning the cheerleaders. Ah, they're doing a cheer. Ah, blah, 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 little, little toned down, probably for obvious reasons, you know. Uh, anyway, so, but let's, uh, don't even know how we got on to, got on to these um, tangents, but, uh, well, let's, let's, let's start talking about the midterms. Um, you, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's a little dicey out there, and Democrats need to be hoping that um, the stuff we have seen over the last, um, you know, the, the stuff we've seen over the last few weeks is some kind of jumbling of data, maybe a little noise, maybe some tightening that, you know, tends to happen and not a kind of last minute trend. You know, one thing that does, I think we may have talked about this last week, um, it's not exactly a last minute trend necessarily. Um, in some elections, there is, you know, a big segment of the population doesn't really uh, tune in until the last six weeks or so. And sometimes you find you find out when those people tune in, they're not that happy. And, you know, and so it's not necessarily that something like went wrong. It's that, you know, kind of like uh, when you're playing poker at a certain point, you know, the opponent like puts his cards on the table and you get the full picture and maybe the full picture isn't great. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I think uh, I, I, I am, you know, cautiously optimistic that they can hold the Senate. Uh, they've got to they got to pull out that uh, Pennsylvania race. They've got to pull out that uh, Nevada race. And you know, each of those has each of those has dynamics that are that are pretty interesting in their own terms. You know, um, Harry Reid, as we know, passed away a few years ago. I can't remember exactly, maybe two or three years ago. Um, had had cancer for a number of years. Died as thankfully died as a pretty old man. Um, he built this is the first big election since his passing you know big nevada election since his passing um and he built a machine in that state that delivered for democrats and one of the first times we really saw it was back in i can't remember if it was 2010 or 2012 i think it was 2010 um when he beat a woman named sharon angle you know tea party kind of crazy woman. It really seemed like he was going to lose. He was down in the polls the whole time or, you know, most of the time. It didn't look good. And uh, I remember, you know, there's this guy, Joe Ralston, who used to be the lead reporter for uh, one of the big, I can't remember which of the in-state papers, but, you know, he was that guy. He also had like a TV talk show. He was kind of the political reporter guy in the state. And then a couple years ago, uh, a few years ago, he started this thing called the Nevada Independent, uh, which is, you know, one of these, um, you know, uh, subscriber, maybe foundation supported independent news sites. You see more and more of them kind of picking up the slack for the decline of traditional papers. And I remember in that race, I, I think it was 2010, possibly it's 2012, but I think it was 2010, um, him saying 
at the, you know, on the day of, day of the election, sort of like, you know, the polls say that Angle's going to win. And a lot of things say Angle's going to win. But I'm just going to put it out there that I think Harry Reid is going to win. And he went through, he's got the machine, he's got the state wired, blah, 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 blah. And he won. He did win. And that machine has really been there for Democrats over the last, uh, you know, in the, in the in the subsequent decade or so. And big question: can can it can it pull you know can it can it pull her over the line? You got the the situation with John Fetterman uh, in Pennsylvania. I think we know how you know they have really the Oz campaign has really beat him up on crime and his stroke recovery. There's interesting. I've seen some. I've seen some polling data and some sort of anecdotal data that as he has leaned into conducting his stroke recovery in a fairly transparent, open way, that it's connecting with some people. That rather than people thinking like, oh my God, this guy, he's like, you know, looking at closed captions and 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 he bobbles his words, he's not ready for prime time, that that is having some traction with some people of saying like, you know, that happened to my uncle. That happened to me. Happened to my grandpa. That's life. And you got to, you know, you got to move through it and so forth. So, you know, these are, you know, kind of like back to football games. These are close and they've got all these different sub narratives in them and, and, and dimensions to them. I mean, we've, you know, we go back to uh, Georgia where you've got a kind of, you know, totally feral maniac and like compulsive liar <laughs> in Herschel Walker and a pretty stand-up guy in the sitting senator, Raphael Warnock. Um, and that's kind of down to the, you know, down to the wire. Warnock's got some advantage, but, you know, we're kind of, everything is, um, everything in this election is under the cloud of Democratic underperformance in a couple recent elections, right? You look at it and say like, all right, if we assume polls are accurate, some will be inaccurate this way. Some will be inaccurate that way. But on balance, they're accurate. Okay, Democrats can get this done. We don't know that anymore. And so that kind of looms like, okay, yeah, he's up by two or three points. But like we've seen how quickly two or three points is, can evaporate. So, you know, I, I was, Kate, I was telling you before we started that in my line of work, it, it sort of helped me in a way. I, I'm not... I don't allow myself to give in to um, my fears or doubts about political and electoral outcomes. Some of that is characterological, but some of that is because I kind of do this professionally and I can't be like, you know, jumping up and down at every whatever of the, of, 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 of the polls. Um, you're newer at this. I guess you have a little more ability to jump up and down or pull your hair out. How are you, mm. what, how are you doing with this? Or maybe oh, I'm maybe I'm just no. wrong about how you experience it. Yeah, no, it's okay. Fully uh, panic inducing, I would say. I was thinking, I was reflecting the other day how I used to enjoy elections. You know, like I remember getting really excited about Obama number one and Obama number two was the first time I could vote and blah blah blah. Um, yeah, I don't think that'll ever be true again after 2016. You know, it's just when every election feels this existential and is this existential, it's just, where's the joy in that? <laughs> you know, you're just like praying that your fellow countrymen won't hand over the government to the hands of people who are not interested in having a democracy because gas has ticked up a bit. I mean, that's a pretty unfortunate situation to be in. Um, 
Georgia in particular, I did want to talk about a little bit because they just had what will likely be the only debate um, in that race, which I think anyone who's been paying attention to this, you would think the Walker camp is wise to not put him in many debates. Um, And he did a lot of expectations management. You know, he did a whole, I'm just a simple country boy. I'm not smart like Warnock. He's going to make me look dumb, which aside the fact that that's not a disqualifying statement to make is I'm not an elite like him. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a, very I don't smart, have, but I don't have fancy degrees like some people. Power. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was interesting because I was kind of seeing reactions in real time to this debate of like, well, you know, Walker's holding his own. He's not doing as badly as you think. And in some ways, it's like the bar is surely beneath the floor. <laughs> but I think he was helped out a lot by the moderator in that debate because there was a lot of kind of cutting off of the personal history stuff to kind of, quote, focus on the issues, mm-hmm. which while maybe I understand that in theory is insane. Like you're picking the per you're, the point of a debate, right, is so voters can get to know the people who are vying for your vote. And then if the reaction to that is to curtail conversation about people's character, people's past actions, people's habits of behavior. In this case, not only is that completely favoring the Walker camp, it also just seems to me to be a disservice to the very thing you're trying to provide to people. It would be like in, you know, kind of Trump-Hillary debates, if Trump's kind of background of being, uh, you know, considering rules beneath him and kind of screwing over people who are working for him, of lying, of of inflating all these things that ended up being very integral to his administration were just not allowed to be part of the conversation as if you get a fresh slate at like, you know, 55 or whatever when you decide to run for office. Right, right. You know, it's funny. I I think that... um... Certainly coming from like the Bill Clinton era, there's a refrain that candidates who are kind of on the ropes have like, you know, they want to talk about him and me. I want to talk about you because you are the ones important. They're talking about our stuff. Blah, 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 blah. And I think that that um, that approach is can have some merit if you're like this and, and everybody has their personal opinions about what is significant and what is not significant, but like uh, a guy's marriage fell apart because one of the people cheated or, you know, there are certain personal things that matters to some people, but to other people are like, that's his birth. That's person's personal life. That's not like, whatever, that doesn't have anything to do with me. I think if you're talking about, you know, threats to kill your own family, you know, having like, you know, they, they use this kind of like archaic word, siring, you know, I sired a son, um, you know, having a bunch of kids who you don't support or have to be compelled to support um, the abortion stuff. I mean, this is not, this is not, you, I don't think you look at like, ah, they were saying my, my senator threatened to blow his wife's head off. Come on, man. That doesn't have anything to do with me. I think that has something to do with you. That That's something that's really, that's not kind of like, did he, did someone kind of like, you know, was someone kind of a cad in their marriage or was someone uh, unfair to their husband or something like that? So, yeah, it does. I mean, you know, and, and, and you have um, you have other things, uh, you know, lying about his business, lying about being a cop, 
these aren't like weird personal things um, that kind of like, oh, that's irrelevant. Don't like, you know, don't, don't pull us down into the gutter talking about when he claimed he had a business that didn't exist. Come on. Right. You know, think higher. Yeah. I mean, it's also kind of interesting because a trend we've seen this year really in earnest is a complete decrease in the number of debates at all. And some of the big marquee races are having zero debates. And I would say I'm not someone who kind of goes to the mat for debates being this crystallization of American democracy, because I think in some ways, debates have always been pretty clearly fallible in big ways, you know, kind of made for who's most telegenic, made for sound bites rather than an actual robust exchange of ideas. You know, I'll never forget, and it was in one of the big sprawling democratic debates um, before the field had narrowed for 2020. And I think someone was asked, you know, to give us, I think it, it was Bernie Sanders who was asked, but, you know, explain the kind of healthcare system you would want. You have 30 seconds. And it's like, what are we talking about? I mean, that's silly, you know? And so... But coming from that perspective, I think it's this combination of Republicans now, thanks to Trump being in a place where thumbing your nose at the press is not a sign of cowardice or the shallowness of your candidacy, but something to be celebrated by the base. That you're a badass. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you're you're putting it to the, the lamestream media. It's I think it's that. And I think it's this idea that as soon as you start trending in that direction, that debates are that skipping out on debates is not like a fatal blow to your candidacy. Why would you do them? I mean, the the downside is so high that if you yeah. mess up, there's going to be some kind of big viral clip. Yep. Whereas if you kind of perform well, uh, but not in a spectacularly viral way, it's kind of like, okay, well, the only people who are going to clock that are the reporters who are covering it and maybe right. the handful of people who are already very staunchly in their kind of partisan foxholes who are watching. Um, right. But it's interesting, you know, because like this, this Georgia race, which everything might come down to, you know, we're going to, we've got that one debate and we've got some criticisms of how it was moderated and it doesn't really matter. You know, Walker's abortion stuff didn't come up at all. And then, and then now that's that. And then yeah. in some others, well, you've you got people that, not debating at all. You yeah. saw this thing where the, they had this other debate that he was just, it was just an empty podium. Right. Yeah. For him. And, mm -hmm. but it's, but it's interesting because there are some Democrats that uh, like there's this thing in Arizona. Is it Katie yep. Hobbs? Katie That's Hobbs, right. right? Yep. That she has refused to debate, and she's getting criticized a lot for it. Not so much from Democrats saying, "Hey, civic duty." More like, "What the fuck are you thinking? How? Why are you not debating?" You know, she's the crazy person. Um, why are you not debating? And 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 because why are you not? Like, what what what's going on here? And. I, I don't know, but my sense is is that this was partly early on a thing of like Carrie Lake is a freak who doesn't believe in elections and it's beneath us to listen to her lie to us in a debate. And that that um that stance can work if you're ahead. But it doesn't it's it's not great if you're tied or like a point behind. You're kind of like like, OK, she's beneath us, but she's probably going to be the next governor. So maybe you give it a try. And I don't know. And now the other thing might be that um, Lake was 
basically a very prominent TV news person for 25 years in Arizona. So clearly she knows how to uh, present in front of TV cameras. So maybe part of it is they just think she's going to be a lot better debater and they don't want to, but, but that's not a great, that's, that's not a great, uh, that's not a good reason because I think not debating, especially I, I think that, um, at some level voters get that Republicans are weird and some of them have uh, limited cognitive ability. So of course they're going to not be crazy about debating. Um, but Democrats are supposed to be into the civic engagement thing and they're supposed to be able to talk about policy. So like when a Democrat doesn't debate, sort of like, why are you debating? What, like, what is that about? And, and, you know, on the issue of debating generally, you know, mostly they're lame and um, it gets down to sound bites that both campaigns are trying to, you know, lay traps for and stuff like that. But I do think they're worthwhile in two senses. Um, there are a lot of people who are just not paying attention until pretty late, and uh, they don't have strong ideological commitments. So they are conceivably open to voting for either, you know, either person. Um, and the other thing is, it's the only time in a campaign where neither candidate can say, whoa, cut the cameras, this interview's over, or, you know what I mean? It is a that it is a it's a situation where they have to talk about themselves and react in a um you know react in a uh, dexterous way to questions that might be a little uncomfortable and i don't think it's any sense that kind of like wow you know the skill set you need to to kick ass in a debate is identical to the skill set to run a state i mean not even close but it's but it's something that voters kind of have a right to I want to see you up there kind of needing to think on your feet once just to kind of get a measure of you. Yeah, that's kind of what I was going to say is the other piece of the shunning debate trend is the greater shunning any unfriendly media or crowd at all. I mean, and we've seen that, I think, to greatest effect, particularly in the J.D. Vance and the Oz campaigns, which have basically only done private events, you know, events with kind of like vetted crowds where, you know, you're speaking to a friendly audience and you're not going to, you're not even going to be heckled. You know, you can even take that out of the equation. Right. We have right. just really left behind, I think, the days of retail campaigning, you know, where you're more likely as a candidate to kind of bump up against opposition. It's funny that, you know, that has been kind of Beto O'Rourke's calling card that he's going all over the state and going in person and going mm -hmm. to places where Democrats never win. And that's, that's a, a unique thing at this point, because why bother doing that anymore? And um, he also, I think in some cases, he is looking in his own way for the viral moments when totally. some when when some like right winger will say like uh you gun grabbing Beto and and he'll and Beto will go off on him like or you know toss in a couple f bombs and suddenly it's like all over Twitter kind of thing hundred percent yeah so I do think that while I have I do have kind of sympathy for this idea of Democrats who don't want to debate someone like Carrie Lake who we know is telegenic and fluent and well spoken and believes crazy crazy things which means she's going to be able to package those things in a way that 
if you're a, an uninformed voter listening, you're going to be like, hmm, well, you know, sounds fine. And she is uh, graceful on stage. So what more am I asking? Because I think moderators, with, with some big exceptions, but moderators a lot of times have shown themselves not up to the task of on their feet fact checking when you've got these Republican candidates kind of spewing these conspiracy theories or, or you know, half truths. But like you say, you just you got to do it. And if there are if no one has to do debates anymore, which is kind of happening in conjunction with the especially in the House, the just extinguishing of competitive races at all. That's just going to mean we're going to have people kind of giving little talks to rooms of donors or to, you know, the the head of the Republican Party of whatever county. And right. You know, that's nobody can argue that that is healthier for a democracy than having debates, even if the debates are imperfect. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's 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 hard to uh, it's hard to, you know, there was actually a thing with uh, Mehmet Oz. Uh, it actually happened last month, but it took a while for the information to get out about it. He did sort of a a. a um, an event in inner city Philadelphia. I don't know exactly which neighborhood, but it was basically like the theme of it was basically minorities facing out of control crime. Oh my gosh. And there was a, a woman there, an African American woman who told a very powerful story about her teenage, um, I don't think it was her child. Maybe it was, I thought it was more like her nephew or something like that, uh, but who was murdered, you know, uh, but with a gun, you know, in some sort of, uh, I don't know exactly what the context was, but doesn't matter what the context was. He's dead. A very, you know, horrifying story. And that story was true. What they did not, what the, um, what the Oz campaign did not disclose was that she worked for his campaign. <laughs> yeah. And look, that does not in, you know, that does not make her nephew or son or whoever it is any less dead and anybody who's a parent, an aunt, an uncle can imagine the absolute horror of that experience. Having said that, you should say that you work for the campaign. That's not, that's not legit. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of, uh, it's, it's kind of part of the same story of like, you know, just talking to, uh, your own, you know, your own donors, um, uh, you, you know, some, some politicians, some politicians are better than others. And there are some politicians who can really go out there in un, uh, unscripted, uncontrolled settings. And sometimes you have someone give you a hard time. Um, but the good ones are able to kind of show their stuff you know, and either persuade people or talk in a convincing way that doesn't persuade someone, but shows you in a good light or when necessary, totally lay into someone and good, a, you know, and get a good um, uh, viral moment. And, you know, some, you know, Beto's good at that. Mm -hmm. Oz is not good at that. Um, and, it, you know, it varies. Yep. Person to person. So let's talk about... Uh a lawsuit that might kind of affect these midterms as we're going into them, which is we mentioned briefly on the show last time that um, the Supreme Court knocked down this lower court ruling that said undated absentee ballots in Pennsylvania must be counted because uh, they found, you know, 
whether or not there's a date on the outside envelope has nothing to do with what that person is qualified to vote, you know, not least because the offices have to receive the ballots in time. So you you know if they're there in time to be counted or not. Uh, now is, pre- is this if the so we know that when you send a letter, it gets that stamp that mm-hmm. has a post date. That's right. when it was put in the mail. Is it that we're talking about? That, no, okay. it's not even right. that. It's a it's the handwritten date you put next to your signature on the outside of the envelope. Right. So now, isn't there also something on the inside that it's also dated on the inside or is that a different thing? Uh, I don't think so. I think it's just on the outside envelope, or at least that's okay. what's being debated right now. Right. Um, I think there's some there's there's at least a couple jurisdictions where it's sort of like you know you date it on the outside envelope and the, on the inside mm, document, yeah. and people are saying, well, didn't date you date it on on the inside one, but not on the outside one, so. Right. Sucks so, and we had the court mooted that decision. So, basically, kind of bringing up this question of whether or not these ballots should be counted again three weeks before Pennsylvania hosts, you know, perhaps the most kind of critical races of the cycle. And now, at, you know, just like the conservative justices basically, you know, wink, wink, told them to do, the RNC has filed a lawsuit saying, um, in Pennsylvania Supreme Court, saying, you guys should say now that. We can't count undated or or incorrectly dated envelopes, which eludes me how you would prove that between, you know, one day or another in the in that time before Election Day where it counts. Well, I guess it's possible someone might say, uh, you know, October 19th, 2024. Sure. Yeah. You know, uh, kind of there's lots of things that, that yeah. are possible. But so they're calling for them to. uh order from the bench that you can't count those, have all the counties segregate those ballots away from the you know correctly dated ones, and then also moot the acting secretary of state's guidance, which she handed down a statement the day of the Supreme Court case saying this was a, you know, a technical decision. This had nothing to do with the merits of the case. Keep counting. We want to count all legal ballots. So um, it's, ba- it's basically that the Supreme Court said, we're going to take a look at this. We're going to we're going to review. We're not saying what we're going to do. We're just saying or I guess they wanted to what um vacate the lower court thing and say mm-hmm. we'll take it up a little later kind of kind of thing. That part is not even in- super clear to me because you would think if they were trying to decide this case before the election they would have to get on it, you know, which is why I think the uh, Republicans here are asking the Supreme Court to use their, quote, King's bench power to just like put out put out an order that will control these elections. Um, and so there, you know, the political calculus is bare. Democrats of late have been voting by mail a lot more than Republicans do. You know, that's a combination of you generally had more cautious Democrats than Republicans during COVID. It's Trump vilifying vote by mail, even when it was unclear that that was in his political interest. You know, it's the the spurious voter fraud claims that all kind of hinge on mail-in ballots, just because I think we've maybe finally gotten to a point where the idea of how you would even commit in-person voter fraud at a scale to make a difference is so ludicrous, you have to pretend like you could do it by mail. So anyway, that is a piece that's floating out there. You know, who knows? Maybe, you know, we don't know. Maybe, say, Fetterman and Shapiro win by so many votes that it doesn't matter. But that is just something to kind of keep our eye on uh, as we're heading into the election. It seems like there's a decent chance that Shapiro will win Shapiro by... seems to have the race well in hand, yeah. Yeah, and but it's the other one that is that is 
a problem. Um, yep. You know, it's funny. One, one. I just wanted to say, I think, I think what I always thought is, is the pro, in a in a in a democratic republic, the proper jurisdudent, eh, jurisdudents, the proper jurisprudence about election law is you want a a jurisprudence of enfranchisement. Mm-hmm, exactly. And what I mean by that is the law is the law. Um, if if you just make it up as you go along, there's no point in having election laws. And it's critical to have election laws to have certainty about about how you litigate elections. But very frequently, as in all law, there are ambiguities in the law. You know, things that like, okay, here's a here's a a set of facts. It's not it's not entirely addressed. You should approach those looking for solutions that are consistent with the law, but allow legal voters votes to be counted. And that is that, that is just obvious to me that that is how a democratic republic should work. It's not, it, it is not something that, this, that the state is neutral about whether everybody's vote should count. If you're not allowed to vote, it shouldn't count. If you did something in voting that is, you know, not illegal in the sense that you're in trouble, but you clearly did not vote in the right way, your vote might not count. But again, we should be looking for interpretations of the law that are consistent with the law and really consistent with the law, but are are leaning in ways to include the votes of legal electors. And and you know, one of the things we see from this Supreme Court is, oh, and kind of Republicans generally, is over and over again, you're finding these kind of like interpretations, often very strained interpretations, the upshot of which is this person who is an American citizen and entirely entitled to vote, you found some kind of notional reason why their vote gets thrown in the garbage can. And that's just bullshit. Totally. I mean, and this is something that we as Americans are quite familiar with, right? Because this is what, I mean, Jim Crow was all about, was kind of finding ways to invalidate the votes of black people, whether it be, you know, poll taxes or or tests or whatever. And this is just kind of, it's that, but it's just you know, maybe perhaps a bit more subtle, even though I would barely say it is because in the RNC's filing, they say outright, uh, we need immediate relief because otherwise the damage to our candidates will be incalculable. They they use the word dilute, that the Republican votes will be diluted by legitimate Democratic votes. So you have to find a way to slice those, you know, out of the pool. And this kind of this conversation reminds me, I'm sure you saw it, I'm sure our listeners saw it, the video of the people in Florida being you know, arrested by the police as part of DeSantis's new election crackdown team. And the video itself, I mean, it made me cry. It's heartbreaking because you have this person who I guess had prior felony, uh, was sentenced for for a felony. But he, the police are kind of coming at him and he's like, why'd you tell me I could vote if I couldn't vote? And the police says something like, I don't know, buddy, or something. You know, even the police are clearly kind of baffled by the situation. It, it was it was striking that that there were in a few of those videos, um, the arresting police officers said things that they were kind of they were clearly kind of embarrassed. 
and and they kind of said as much. They were kind of, I'm really sorry, but we have to, you know, and they do. I mean, how these work is, so there is a state bureau that DeSantis has set up that kind of does these you know, is doing these arrests, but then they need to call out to the local police department in a town or county or whatever, and they go and arrest the person. So it's not, it's not the county doing it, but you know, that's how the system works. They don't have, uh, and as unfortunate as it is in this case, that is, that is how the police should operate. The police are not in charge of who is, who's arrested for a crime. Um, but it was, you know, and it, if, if, if you haven't seen these videos that Kate is talking about, it really is rough because you see these guys and police come up and the, and the person who's about arrested, who's about to be arrested is kind of baffled what is even going on. And they're say, you're being arrested for voting when you weren't allowed to vote. And a couple of them are sort of like, I, I can't believe I'm being arrested for voting when everybody's always saying we're all supposed to vote. And, and one of these guys case, the guy saying, when I went to the DMV, they said I was eligible. And I said, no, 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 I'm a felon. And they said, no, 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 there's a new law. If you're a felon, it's okay. And if there's some reason that it's not okay, if you fill it out, it will be invalidated. So a, a, someone speaking for the government basically saying, all good, you're good. You can vote. And if for some reason we don't know you can't vote, someone else will take care of it. So kind of just do it. And this person did that. And now they're being arrested. And it's it's just it's just sickening. You know, if certainly if I knew anybody who was a felon who would you know, completed probation, all that kind of stuff, and was on some similar context, like, oh, now felons can vote. I would say, like, I honestly don't vote because they could decide a year later that you weren't eligible and now you're in trouble for a serious crime. I mean, why would any felon or even anybody who, <laughs> and, 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 you know, they, they did 19 of these arrests. I think at least 13 of them were African-Americans um, or maybe even more. They were mostly Democrats. They're mostly African-Americans. Right. I mean, which is the point and which is why it's so evil, because the point of this is so other people see it and are like, you know what, I'm not even going to take a chance. You know, I'm yeah. not going to risk uh, getting you know prosecuted on these on these laws that, as you say, even I do think like well-meaning kind of government workers don't even understand the way that they're being weaponized or that they will be weaponized. And it's such it's the same thing with the ballots. Right. In a, in a lower key way. It's the idea that they're so much doubt around voting, that it is in your best interest to not even risk it because you could get in trouble. And that's just so disgusting. And it makes, I think it's why, you know, looping back to the beginning, why elections are so completely unenjoyable for me now is that you've got one party that is doing this in a dedicated way, more and more brazenly every election to pick their voters and to make people who would vote against them feel unsafe doing so. And yet we're talking about gas prices and, you know, inflation. And I know those things are real and I know they have bearing on your life. I, I've i seen no proof of what Republicans would offer to counter those prevailing forces. But it's just, it's just that it feels like our democracy is just hanging by this thread. And there you just have no confidence that quote unquote normal Americans care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think that is a 
I think that is a fair way to uh, look at it. And again, sort of like, you know, there are, I don't know what the exact number is, but there are, as there are in every state, there are a lot of people with previous felony uh, uh, convictions. And that's why there was, you know, and remember the state of Florida passed this, you know, passed this, um, you know, uh, referendum or, or, or whatever. And then the, the state legislature kind of, um, you know, kind of pocket vetoed it. So it's, you know, it's, it's not good. It's not, it's, it's really gross. Yeah. All right. So we'll, we'll end by shifting our gaze to, you know, the woes that are primarily happening in other countries, but that still uh, have have an effect here. We'll go to this question from Carl, who says, let's say Democrats do poorly in the election and Republicans take over both houses of Congress. Republicans start blackmailing Biden with a government shutdown or debt default. How much will this impact European members of NATO and their support for the war in Ukraine? My hunch is that they will be tempted to cut a deal with Russia if U.S. support and funding for Ukraine is in peril. And just real quick, Josh previewed this um, in the intro, but for anyone who's kind of memory hold the debt ceiling standoff, you know, the way it works is Republicans say that they won't help vote to raise or suspend the debt ceiling, which we have to do to authorize the Treasury to spend the funds that have already been appropriated by Congress. So even though Republicans will pretend that this has to do with fiscal responsibility, it has absolutely nothing to do with future spending. It is just authorizing the allocation of funds that have already been appropriated. And when they say they won't do that, they're threatening to let the U.S. default on its debts, which would almost certainly trigger a financial a catastrophe on a global scale and then well, well this is this is a, this is a little different than that or at least maybe i misunderstood what you were saying this is paying the the i mean it's i don't want to get too complicated with it basically it, it is uh issuing debt that the government is already committed to spending right that's what i'm saying yeah no no, no you are you are, you are correct i was just i i was um i wanted to get in that the government is is legally obligated to spend this money. Right. And I mean, it's, it's just whether can... you're going to pay the credit card when the, when you get the credit card bill. Yeah. I saw someone describe it as like, you know, you go into a restaurant for a meal, you eat everything, and then you get the bill and you're like, you know what? In, in the name of fiscal responsibility, <laughs> I'm not going to pay this bill. Right. Um, so, you know, that's the that's the debt ceiling thing. It started in 2011 when uh, Tea Party Republicans came in and demanded uh, cuts to government spending, except they wouldn't accept higher taxes. So only slashing government programs. And then they did it again in 2013, where they demanded that Obama defund the Affordable Care Act. And they've done it to kind of varying degrees of severity since. Um, and you will hear some mainstream repo- uh, reporters say that both sides do this. And it's just... Democrats have taken symbolic votes not to raise the limit when there was no threat of it actually not being raised. It's just not the same thing at all. And now Republicans are they're already saying that they're going to do this, that they're going to extort the president because it's a Democrat. And, you know, the big thing they've been floating this time is cuts to Medicare and Social Security, which I'd note they could have pursued for the two years they had unified control under Trump, but interestingly did not. But here, Carl's talking about Another thing that's come up that you mentioned is McCarthy has kind of floated an interest in not sending aid to Ukraine anymore. So that could be another potential, uh, you know, ransom demand in this kind of hostage taking of the debt ceiling. Right, right. Yeah, no. And and to the question, 
Um, it's, 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 it's very hard. It's, it is very hard to know. I, I think that, um, you know, one thing the Democrats could do would be to pass a lot more aid or pass a, an operating, you could pass legislation that gave the president discretion to do more aid. There's, you know, there's various things you could do to get a law on, on, on the books. Um, more narrowly, there are things that the president as commander in chief, and I don't know the all the technical details of this, but he is the commander in chief of the United States military. And the president can decide, you know what, it is in the interest of our national security. We're going to toss you a few of our tanks, right, to help you out. But you can only do so much of that, right? Because you get into 60, 100 billion dollars you're going to start having people say, wait a second, we need the stuff for our military. And that's, you know, so it, it's, it's complicated. Um, I don't think, I don't think there is going to be a separate deal like that. I think what we need to be worried about is that a, a kind of a revanchist right-wing party is now running the government in Italy. Those governments tend to be very pro-Russian and very pro-authoritarian. The, government of the United Kingdom is basically, uh, you know, collapsing into a, a small puddle of molasses. So I don't know what they're going to be able to do. So and then you have the thing that the Russians have been banking on is that people will be literally cold in Europe this winter without the ability to heat their homes. Um, so these things, uh, these things are a big problem. And I think it really behooves the Democrats maybe to do something in the lame duck session if, if this is going to be an issue. I don't think there is a lot that there, there is a lot that um, the U.S. president can do even without that kind of full, uh, you know, kind of budgetary legislation that he can continue to give a lot of support to Ukraine. I also think that this has been a big jolt to Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe, where you have countries that are, you know, very worried, very hostile to Russia for a lot of historical reasons that are relatively recent, Poland, you know, places like that, um, the, the Baltic states. But even, you know, one of the big things has been in Germany, they are rearming they're, you know, they are giving aid. So this isn't, it's not, um, it's not like it used to be where the Europeans are thinking about possible worlds where the U.S. does not play such a large role in Europe. And they are anticipating that and thinking like, we want to have some military ourselves to not be, um, you know, to not be on the line for every time the United States elects a freak as president. So I don't, I don't think that is going to happen. But I do think that in Russia they have to be thinking: let's hold on till January, and 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 maybe things will change. I would add, in addition to Democrats, perhaps you know, passing more Ukraine aid before. Republicans potentially took over if they flip a house. They could also totally defang the debt ceiling thing before it comes to pass. And 
it's it's pretty generally thought that you can't totally get rid of the debt ceiling without going through regular order, which obviously the filibuster would prevent. But you can, through reconciliation, hike the ceiling so high that you're just not in any danger of bumping up against it you know, anytime soon. And that's what our only kind of pure nation that still is dealing with such an arbitrary and dangerous line is Denmark. And that's what they did. They made it, you know, quadrillions of dollars to something that out of sight, out of mind is no longer a part of day to day politics. And Democrats absolutely could do that unilaterally. Now, mm-hmm. this kind of came up before, um, before the last debt ceiling standoff, which ended up being concluded by Republicans caving and allowing a filibuster carve out so Democrats could lift the ceiling unilaterally. But this came up then and you had some, you know, Elizabeth Warren was really into it. Schatz is the one who has the the bill to repeal it. But there was not a lot of energy. There was not a lot of focus about kind of getting people to do this. And then you also, of course, ever long have Joe Manchin, who so readily swallows whatever myths Republicans tell, particularly about the economy. So you're not saying that it's politically even like likely to happen, but it just should be put out there that Democrats could kind of assume their role as adults in the room and not let Republicans ruin the country. (laughs) Or they could at least it would be a a more modest but still fairly significant move would be to um, add money that would push it into the next presidency. Mm-hmm. Now, conceivably, you have uh, you know Joe Biden reelected Republican Congress, then you're kind of back in the same thing. But you get another crack at the election apple. It's better than it's it, it it's better than having it come up in 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 2023. Has has Mansion been? Has Manchin been asked about this? Has this come Not up? Really. Do we know? I mean, it's crazy that it hasn't. I mean, it's 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 one of those things where it's it's dumb, but you know, no no politician wants to do it unless it's bipartisan because you'll have ads saying, "Ah, oh, this person voted to borrow twenty billion dollars," which it's not what it is, but it can be presented that way. Um, but the reality is a it's two years out from any election and B, no one gives a shit about that stuff. Yes, it sounds bad, but there's never an election like, oh my God, they passed for this thing and wow, that that was over for them. Also, I just think the fear of being tied to a number is a little overblown because normal people cannot conceive of the difference between some billion, some trillion, some quadrillion. I mean, that's an amount that a normal human being just can't fathom. That's something that's so out of reach. So to me, I get that you don't want to be the subject of a Republican ad being like, Kate Riga voted to spend a quadrillion of your taxpayer dollars, whatever. But first of all, they're going to say that anyway, about whatever legislation you end up passing. And then B, it's just, these are enormous numbers. I just, people can't, are not going to be like, well, I would have voted for you if it was only a billion, but it's a quadrillion. So later days, I'm going to be a Republican. I mean, it's just silly. And the threat is so large that you would think taking that one on the chin might be worth it anyway. And and I think there is a, re, a very real chance that it, that we will have a debt default in 2023 mm-hmm. because, uh, they are, they're, they're, um, one of the things about Kevin, you know, there's been a few articles, sort of source greasing articles about Kevin McCarthy basically saying, that guy's a ball breaker. Don't cross Kevin. He keeps, you know, he keeps everybody in line. 
<laughs> when? You know, yeah, well, yeah. It's it's just like you publish things like that, and you're saying like, can you remember that we all know that is that is so completely false that it's like ridiculous. McCarthy's leadership style is he goes to whoever the craziest new person is and just says, "What do you need? What do I need to sign on to?" You know. Uh, a year and a half ago, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene was sort of like, you know, going to be stripped of her committee assignments and she's QAnon, it's dangerous and blah, 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 blah. And now he's saying she's she's great, going to yep. get her on the campaign trail. So there's no one, there. there's not going to be a counterbalance uh, in the legis, you know, in the legislative leadership on the Republican side. That's there's that's not going to happen. There's not going to be a fail safe like that, and um, it's not going to not going to be McConnell. It's going to be it's going to be McCarthy, and McCarthy trying probably to hold on to his speakership. And if they're saying, you know, do this or cut Medicare, as as apocalyptic as a debt default is, and I, people cannot understand, grasp how apocalyptic it is, um, maybe not for the whole world, but for the United States. You know, it's always the thing where you just had this big blow up in the UK because the UK is not the, the reserve currency of the world. So when they borrow money, they have to borrow it and people kind of have to think like, are they going to be able to pay it back? And because of the dominance of the dollar and the absolute security of U.S. debt, we're basically able to just borrow crazy amounts of money and people are always looking to buy it. That is a huge, huge, huge advantage. And why we would want to so find global financial turmoil and lose that thing, you don't lose it in a day, but you lose it over time, is completely crazy. But I think if they say, okay, cut Medicare and we won't do this, I don't think there's going to be any appetite among Democrats kind of like, this sucks, but we got to cut Democrat, we got to cut um, totally. Social Security. because, And so I don't see either side budging because Democrats don't want to cut Social Security the way that Republicans do. And they, it is, it is just deeply died into the fabric of democratic political culture now, you just do not negotiate with this kind of hostage taking. You just don't. Right. I mean, which with good reason, right? That lesson came out of 2011, where Obama was just kind of caught flat footed by this. And they were trying to cut some kind of a deal with Republicans, which along with having budgetary cuts that, you know, Democrats really, really heartily opposed also had real consequences. You know, the United States um, S&P rating was downgraded for the first time. And experts still think that that was a big contributor to the sluggish recovery from the Great Recession. You know, it basically hobbled our economic rebound. So and that was just from kind of flirting with the idea of letting it default. So, yeah, the stakes are just so enormous here. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's not good. Well, it's on that cheery note. Yeah. Well, cheery note, it can remind you, you can, you can, uh, you know, take a little, um, 
a little pep me up uh, with uh, cold brew iced coffee. So you should remember that uh, Grady's Cold Brew Iced Coffee is sponsored the Josh Marshall Podcast. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And uh, I guess we'll be back next week with more, uh, hopefully not more doom scrolling, but maybe, you know, if things continue on the path that they are. Uh, but we'll be back and we will, uh, you know, g- g- give you a keep keep you up to date on all the all the stuff that's happening in the political world yep all right we'll see you next week later the josh marshall podcast is hosted by me tpm reporter kate riga and tpm founder editor-in-chief josh marshall the show is produced by jackie wilhelm thanks to why not jansfeld for our podcast theme song and thanks to all our tpm members who make this possible rate and review us on apple podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen 